Let me again welcome everybody here to Big Valley. Welcome to all of you that are over in the venue now. Blessings on you and if you're watching online again, I'm grateful that you're with us. Wow, it's been a good morning already. I love our, our quartet. Aren't, aren't they getting better? Man, our quartet is getting better, man. Man, just that acapella number was just re really great. Um, I appreciate our youth guys. Uh, I did youth ministry for a long, long time, about 20 years here at Big Valley Greats. And it's way, way, way different today than it was 20 years ago. Way more difficult to work with young people today. When I was a youth pastor here, I could literally walk onto any campus here in town, Davis, Downey, Modesto, Byer, just walk on campus. I was welcome on campuses, welcome. And I could uh, do just about anything I wanted to on a campus. Today, our guys are still allowed to go on campus, but it's not easy, all of the training that they have to go through. And then they gotta wear this big badge around their neck that basically says, watch out for this guy, he's a Christian, literally. That's what they're saying. Oh, you're welcome on our campus. Just say you're going to go through a bunch of training. You're going to wear something around your neck that lets everybody know that you're a believer, that you're a Christian. It's a way different gig today. And I'm thankful for a couple of guys who love the Lord. And they dream and think and pray about how they can disciple young people today in the culture that we're in today? Imagine that. And not only disciple young people, but how do they reach lost young people? And if nothing else, please be praying for our youth ministries as they go about doing all that they can to you know, disciple kids. It was fun seeing some of these guys up here, gals up here singing, just young people. And um, last night when they were singing and doing stuff, I, I was just, I had a lot of joy in my heart. Just seeing good, good, godly people working with, uh, uh, you know, just doing good things for God. George Brown, right down here. So I'm on the phone last week. Out of nowhere, I get a call from Lee Wisdom. And Lee Wisdom used to be kind of the big uh, Youth for Christ guy here in town. And uh, he's a missionary in Panama. In fact, he was calling me from Panama. And he was a man who had an influence in my life when I was a teenager. And I was very, it was just fun, you know, I mean, to, to talk with this guy who had to deal with me as a kid at Davis High School. And I didn't give my life to the Lord under Lee and all that they were doing, but certainly... It was really just great to talk with him. We, we talked about you and all of that. Well, hey, inside your program, pull out that little card, okay? It looks like this. Everybody's got to have the card. Friendship Weekend, all right? Come on, pull it out, pull it out, pull it out. Um, you know, one of the things that I think you'd agree with that we certainly believe is that we got a great church here. And what makes this church great isn't the music, it's, um, it's not how wonderful our children's ministry is or our youth ministries are 
or our women's ministries or men's ministries or our CR ministries or anything like that. What makes this church great is, is that we lift up the name of Jesus. Jesus is what makes this church a great place. And one of the things we want to do on Friendship Weekend is we want people to come and, and not see the church, this building, though it's a nice piece of architecture. I, I'm not interested in them seeing, you know, the trumpet players and whatever. I mean, they're good. They're good people. I, I'm not interested in them going, wow, you've got a really neat building over there that the children meet in. It's nice. I want, I want people to come and see the Jesus in us, the Jesus we, we worship and we sing to and we sing about. And so we're just going to have a, a, a great time. It's in two weeks and we want you to invite your friends. We're going to have some special music after all of our gatherings, whether it be Saturday night or uh, 9 a.m. or 11. All of our, we're going to have a bunch of jumpers out there that kids, grandkids can go and play on afterwards. We'll have food and music, and it's just going to be a, a great time here. We're going to do baptisms. We're baptizing lots of people in all of our gatherings. We're going to have uh, uh, child parent dedication that weekend, and we just got a bunch of stuff. We got a special testimony from one of our own members, Mike McDonald, who's a UFC fighter, and, and he's, he's good. I mean, the guy fought for the, for the championship. He's going to share his testimony, and I thought well, that might be a good weekend. Him and I went into the ring, <laughs> Mike McDonald. He's a flyweight. He's a little guy. He's a fast guy, little guy. And I'm the heavyweight, okay? He's a part of the UFC. You guys know the WWF, right? The World Wrestling Federation. That, that's, all, that's us. And my hero was Rowdy Roddy Piper, okay? And you know, you know he knew the sleeper hold. That's my big move is the sleeper hold. I'm not going to tell you how it all ends, but um, also on that weekend you'll see uh, just... You know, three rounds, 15 minutes of nothing but just blood and guts and sweat. And, oh, man, it was unbelievable. I'm lucky uh, I'm still here. So, anyway, uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to have fun that weekend. So, make sure uh, you're, you're praying for your friend and you're bringing your friend. If it works best for your friend to come Saturday night, put aside your need and put their need ahead of yours. Come Saturday. Or maybe 11 o'clock works better for them. You, you, you think about the needs of your friends and then, you know, be a blessing uh, to, to them. Now, for those of you that are visiting uh, with us today, we're, we're going through uh, the book of Romans together as a church family. So if you have a, a, a Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. All of the verses are inside your program or they'll come up on the jumbotrons. But if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. And after the gathering, just go into the altar room. There's an altar room over in the venue, and we'd love to give you your own copy of, of the Bible. Okay, so now you got your fingers right there at Romans chapter 2. One of the things we're doing throughout this series is we're having what we call a not ashamed video where we get to meet somebody in our own church family and they get to share a little bit about a moment in their life or something where they weren't ashamed of the gospel or maybe they were ashamed of the gospel. And this week's is pretty special, so check out the Jumbotrons. I've 
been working here at Big Valley Grace in the children's ministry department for 10 years. Currently, I'm the children's ministry director here. About five years ago, our daughter Allie, our middle daughter, was diagnosed with limbic encephalitis, which is a brain infection. And it definitely changed our lives forever. While she was in the hospital, Allie definitely was willing to share her faith. She would ask doctors and nurses if they knew who loved them the most, they would always respond her, and she would look at them and say, no, God loves you the most. They would look at us like, what do we say? And we wouldn't say anything. We usually just sat there quiet and thought, well, this is Allie's opportunity to share her faith. And thinking back on that later, we realized we missed some opportunities to share the gospel or at least further some conversations with the hospital staff there. This past December, we were hit with another blow. We found out that Allie, after being sick again for a few months, um, had Hodgkin's lymphoma. It had already spread to her bone marrow. It was devastating to us. And we grieved and we cried, but we also prayed. And we knew that God was gonna use this opportunity to do something amazing, and that this time we wanted to take advantage of it. And I decided, along with Joe, my husband, that we were gonna be bold in our faith and we were gonna be vocal about Christ and how much He loves us and what He's done for us. We went to the doctor's office that next morning and it was nothing like we expected. We saw an oncologist, social workers, nurses, even her neurologist came in for the appointment. They threw a ton of medical information at us. We sat there and at one point her oncologist stopped and he said, are you guys okay? You seem really calm. And we were able to clearly communicate that we knew that God was with us through this whole process and that it was our faith in Jesus Christ that was gonna allow us the strength and the courage we needed to get through this. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, do not be afraid for I am with you. Don't be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you with my victorious right hand. I relied on that verse a lot during her treatment. Over those five months, while we went into the oncology department and we went into the infusion clinics, we were able to very boldly share our faith with all of the nurses, social workers, and the doctors. At the end of the five months and the treatment, we went in for our visit to find out if Allie was cancer-free. Uh, the doctors again threw a ton of medical information at us and then proceeded to tell us that her cancer was gone. Her oncologist then told us something that I will never forget. He did not understand how they found Allie's cancer. It was very hard to detect. She didn't have typical symptoms, but they still found it. Hodgkin's lymphoma treatment is some of the worst chemo treatment you can go through that we've been told. But we had a 13-year-old who was able to actually go to school. She was able to have a somewhat of a normal life and he couldn't explain how she did so well. But we again took the opportunity to explain that we knew that Christ was with her, that Christ was the one who gave her the strength through this cancer treatment and that he was the one who filled us with the peace and the strength we needed as her parents to take care of her. We can learn amazing things from our children. Allie taught us how to be bold in our faith. There's definitely a reason why scripture tells us to be childlike in our faith. I'm glad to say that Allie's cancer-free. My name is Lisa DeMont, and I am not ashamed of the gospel. Isn't that a delightful story? 
Last night, they, as a family, they would sit right up there and they had something pretty cool happen yesterday, really. And that is Allie loves the ocean. She loves being in the water. The problem is, because of all that she's gone through, our oceans here are cold. If you go to the, the coast over here, the oceans are cold. And so um, yesterday, they met with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and they were told that this coming Friday, a big limo is going to pull up in front of their house. They're going to pile into that limo. They're going to take them to the airport and Make-A-Wish is paying for it all. They're flying over to Hawaii and they're gonna stay in the Disney Resort as a family in Hawaii. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that fantastic? The Lord, um, he doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always go down like that. But here's a case where the Lord worked through an organization and now this family, I mean, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. You could imagine just flights, let alone staying in a top of the line hotel and all of the fun things you do at a Disneyland resort over there. And the Lord has just honored them. Well, here's the deal. Before I read our text for today, I I wanna give us a, a, a quick overview of where we've been so far, especially for those of you that might be visiting with us. Chapter one of Romans begins with the great apostle Paul giving us a brief introduction of himself. He tells the, the Romans who he is and what God's call in his life was. He uh, shares his love for the gospel, his love for Jesus, that, that the gospel, Jesus has the power to cleanse a person of their sin, that the gospel, Jesus, has the power to remove the wrath of God from a person's life, that the gospel, Jesus, has the power to change the eternal destiny of a person's soul, which is why he tells us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't ashamed of Jesus. He then tells us that God has made himself known to everybody through everything that God has created. Romans chapter one and verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men, women, people are without an excuse. In other words, Paul says it's impossible to deny the existence of God. Nobody will ever be able to stand before God and say, God, I, I just didn't know. I, I just didn't know that there was a God. And in this verse, Paul is telling us, no, no, no. You can look at everything that God made. You can look at all of the stars and the moon and look at it all and go, wow, there just has to be a God. I did some yard work uh, yesterday and I was in my backyard and I have this Gerber daisy plant and, and all of the, 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 the daisies have, have died, the plant's still green and I, all this past week, this new shoot came up and it's red. And I walked out there and I was just kind of looking at it, just spent some time looking at this 
this crazy thing that God has created, how beautiful it was, how majestic it was, how, how just intricate it was, that the color red was just crazy beautiful. And that Gerber daisy tells me somebody created that. I've told you, you know what, if you have a hard time believing in a God, just go home today, look in a mirror, and just check out your eyeball. I mean, that, that in and of itself just screams that there has to be somebody with a lot of intelligence who put that together. And so Paul tells us in Romans chapter one, people are without an, an excuse. But as we all know, people do. People do deny the existence of God and they do it all the time. Though they see the fingerprints of God everywhere, they make the choice to suppress, that was the term that Paul uses in Romans 1, they suppress the truth about God. And if you suppress the truth about God long enough, you'll actually get to a point to where you begin to reject the truth about God. And if you reject the truth long enough, you'll actually get to the place where, you know what, I'll just replace the truth about God. I'll come up with some other explanation. Um, two molecules got together a billion years ago, and now you have an eyeball. And God, Paul tells us that when people do that, when people suppress the truth about him, it makes him angry. When you reject the truth about God, Paul tells us that makes God angry. When you replace the truth about God, Paul says that makes God angry. And that, that makes some sense, doesn't it? That God has made himself known through all that he has created, and yet you have people who suppress that truth, they, they reject that truth, they replace that truth, and it makes sense that God would be angry about that. Now, when you get to chapter 2, Paul shifts gears a little bit, and he begins to unpack the sin that Jesus attacked more often than any other sin, and that was the sin of self righteousness. I've talked about this the last couple of weeks. The person who lives a good and moral life, the person who knows right from wrong. The self-righteous person agrees that God should punish evil people for all the crummy things that they do. A self-righteous person really believes that, that God would never judge them or condemn them because they live such good and moral lives. They think that God judges on some kind of cosmic curve. Hitler, bad. Charlie Manson, bad. Uh, Scott Peterson, bad. Jeffrey Dahmer, bad. They get it. They understand that there needs to be prisons. They understand that, you know, People ought to be condemned to those places. They understand evil. They understand there's wickedness out there. It's just that they're not that bad. 
They're not Charlie Manson. They're not Hitler. They're not eating people like Jeffrey Dahmer did. They're not that evil. And so God would never condemn them. And so they, they kind of look at maybe how God might judge us by this cosmic scale. And they see themselves, you know, as better than most. Which is why Chuck Swindoll calls self-righteousness the deadliest sin in the world. You see, the message of Romans chapters 1 through 3 is that nobody's innocent. We all stand guilty before God. Why? Because we've all sinned. There's no doubt about it. There's no Hitlers in this room. I get it. There's no Jeffrey Dahmers in this room. I get it. There, there's no Stalins in this room. Get it. No Scott Petersons in this room. Understand that. But Paul's point is, is that, that yes, they're evil, but make no mistake about it, you stand condemned too because of your sin. It may not be as bad as other people's, but you still have this problem with sin. In our text today, in verse 5, you might look there, Romans 2, 5, Paul makes this statement. He says, but because you are stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, don't, don't worry about Charlie Manson's sin, don't worry about Stalin's sin, don't worry about any of those guys' sin, but because you re refuse to turn from yours, whatever yours is, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself for a day of anger is coming. It's not gonna be a good day. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Once again, Paul is, is, is bringing up something really weighty for people to wrestle around with, that there is coming a day. And for a lot of people, it won't be a good day when God's judgment is coming. And it all has to do with sin. And Paul wants everybody to understand that whether you're Hitler or whatever, we all stand condemned because of our sin. We've all sinned. But here's the deal. God loved you so much, he gives you a warning. He cares about humanity so much, he gives us all a warning. Judgment is coming. That's a loving thing for God to do, don't you think? <clears throat> and by the way, parents, we understand that. We do that too. We love our kids so much that we say to them, hey, listen, Jimmy, you need to clean your room on Tuesdays. And if you don't clean your room, what happens? You love them so much, you warn them. There'll be a consequence. You won't get to, you know, go to the football game on Friday. You'll, you don't get to use your phone for a week. I don't know what, what the consequence is, but you tell them. 
That, hey, here's what I expect as your mother or your father or whatever it might be. Here, here, here are the rules, of, you know, living in our home. And if you make the choice, and it's your choice, and you don't want to take the garbage out or you don't want to mow the lawn or you don't want to clean your room, you can make that choice. Just understand that there's a consequence that will come along with that. And that's all God is doing. He's telling us, you can make the choice to live however you want to live. But I want you to know, God says, a crummy day is coming. There's a consequence to be paid for your sin. It's coming. Peter said it this way, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, ungodly people. It's coming. That day is coming. And the ungodly there just simply means those that haven't dealt with their sin. A day is coming, if you have not dealt with your sin, that's going to be really crummy. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you have not dealt with your sins, it is a dreadful thing. If you have dealt with your sin, it's a beautiful thing. But the scriptures tell us over and over again throughout the Old Testament, those 39 books in the Old Testament, and throughout the 27 books in the New Testament, that there's coming a really crummy day. There's coming a day when God is going to judge sin. Sin brought with it a, a horrible consequence, the, the wrath of God. Now, it's important to know that God doesn't want anybody to, um, to face this coming final judgment. Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, his promise to come and judge sin, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anybody to perish. Not any, he didn't want anybody to face that horrible moment. But he wants everybody to come to repentance. He wants everybody to deal with the sin in their life. But bottom line is, the day of the Lord will come and it's gonna come like a thief. You see, God loves people, and he loves them so much and desires that they would repent of their sin so much that, that he's patient with people. Back in 1979, I didn't know the Lord. The wrath of God was on my life. God was angry with me. I had suppressed the truth about God. I had rejected the truth about God. I don't think I had replaced the truth about God yet, but I had certainly suppressed it and I had rejected it. 
and the wrath of God was on my life. And I'm so thankful that God was patient and didn't come and judge sin in 1979. I'm glad he was patient. Aren't you glad he was patient with you? Aren't you glad? But here's the deal. God says, I'm coming someday. And I know for thousands of years now, some of you are thinking to yourself, preacher, they've been saying that for thousands of years. I know they were saying it back in Peter's day. Where is he? You say he's angry. You say that the wrath of God is gonna be poured out on sin. Well, guess what? Where is he? Here's the deal. I don't know when he's coming back. I don't. I just know that when you die, you're gonna face that moment. Or he's gonna come back and you're gonna face that moment. And if God should tarry his coming, he'll give you another day, he'll give you another day, he'll give you another day. But there is gonna come a moment when boom, like a thief in the night, he comes. And that's very descriptive because I've had thieves break into my home. You, you get all dressed up and you take your wife out to dinner and you go to a movie and you come home and boom, you know, your TV's gone. Just, you didn't expect it. It's like, what happened? If I knew my TV was gonna get stolen, I'd have hid in the bushes, you know, with a, with a gun or something and waited for the bad guy. But the reason why I left, the reason why I got out of there is because you just didn't expect him. And that's what God's word says. He's gonna come just like a thief in the night when you least expect him. Make no mistake about him. He's being patient with you right now. But he is coming. I don't know when, but he's coming. But he doesn't want anybody to, to face this. Now, now here's, the, here's, here's the deal. Here, here's the question that I wanna answer today, okay? If God's gonna judge people, what, what's the criteria? What will we be judged on? In other words, on what basis is a person condemned to hell? Think about this. When you were in school, and some of you are still in school, and you had to take a, a test, wasn't it helpful when the teacher told you in advance what you're gonna be tested on? That kind of helps you a little bit, doesn't it? Well, God does the same thing. He doesn't you know, say that there's gonna be this final exam or a final judgment at the end of your life, but you have zero idea what it's gonna be on. That wouldn't be fair. You wouldn't tell your children, hey, listen, you're gonna be punished and not tell them why. God doesn't do that either. There is a, a basis on which he will judge us and Romans chapter two gives us some pretty good thoughts and that's what I wanna spend our time on real quickly here. The first one is this, God will judge you on how you choose to conduct your life. That's the first thing. I think this is gonna be really interesting for some of you. In verse five, once again, but because you are stubborn and you refuse to Turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself for a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now look at verse six. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. 
He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everybody who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and then also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Let me tell you what those verses mean. God is watching you. I had to boil it all down, what Paul is telling us there, the Holy Spirit fills his life and God has Paul pin these words and basically what he's saying is that God is watching you. He's watching how you choose to conduct your life, how you're choosing to live. Now, I want you to know that this passage can be easily misunderstood. When you read it, it kind of sounds like you can earn your way to heaven, right? In other words, if you do good, you make it to heaven. If you do bad, you're going to hell. In fact, there are a lot of people believe that if they do enough good things, that somehow that earns them a spot in heaven. There are actually some churches, some pastors who will actually teach that, that somehow God has these cosmic scales and, you know, all the good things you do go here, and all the bad things you've ever do go here, and then you're going to stand before him someday, and oh, yeah, whoa, or oh, really, <laughs> down elevator? What a, what a horrible way to live. It would be impossible for you to know whether you'd go to heaven or not. You see, one of the things I know about us human beings is um, we have selective memory. We only like to remember all the great things we've done, right? We don't remember all the crummy things we thought and all those things. You could read this passage and you could maybe extrapolate out of it that, well, maybe I gotta do enough good things and if I do enough good things and maybe I do get to heaven, but that's not what he's saying here. Okay, the Bible doesn't teach that. Paul isn't gonna talk about how you get saved until you get to chapter three, basically. All Paul is doing is simply saying that your conduct is a good indicator of what you do believe. Paul is saying you can look at your conduct and it'll tell you where you do stand with God. All Paul is doing is simply taking or talking about one of the elements of Judgment, Psalm 62 says, God has spoken plainly and I have heard it many times. Power, O God, belongs to you. Unfailing love, O Lord, is yours. Surely you will repay all people according to what they have done. You will repay people according to their conduct, how they choose to live. Now Paul is basically talking to the Jews here in chapter but there's much application for us Gentiles today. You see, the Jews thought that because they were God's chosen people and because they were given the law, that somehow they were exempt from his wrath. And I'm gonna talk about more, that more here in a minute. 
But my fear is that there might be some of you here right now who, like the Jews, you think that somehow you've escaped the coming judgment because maybe you have a Bible. You think, well, I'm going to escape the coming judgment because I'm a member of this church. I'm going to escape the coming judgment because, you know, when that basket went by, I put some money in it. I'm going to escape the coming judgment because, you know, I, I, I serve at Love Modesto. I serve down at the gospel mission. I'm going to escape this coming judgment for, and then you fill in the blank. Here's the deal. I, I want to I walk through a, a few passages that I hope will help you evaluate whether you really are saved from this coming judgment. Well, pastor, I said a prayer. I, I don't care whether you said a prayer or not. A lot of people who said a prayer are gonna end up in hell. I walked forward in your service, so what? So what? Listen to what Paul wrote to a group of church-going people. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Now, that is really interesting. He's writing that to church people. See, one of the things that Paul wasn't going to do was assume that just because you're in church, just because you own a Bible, just because you walked forward, just because you put money in an offering, that somehow you're in the faith. Nothing wrong with having a Bible. Nothing wrong with putting money in the basket. Nothing wrong with serving. Nothing wrong with any of those things. He said, test yourselves. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? In other words, if Jesus is in you, something's gonna happen in your life. Your conduct is going to change. And Paul is saying, look at that. Look at that. I think Satan would be really happy to have his church filled up with people as long as they really didn't know the Lord. And that's Paul's concern. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to examine yourself. I'm going to just share a couple of thoughts with you from the scriptures and you evaluate yourself, okay? In John chapter 10, uh, some men asked Jesus a question, and it's his answer that I want you to kind of wrestle around with. They said, Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Huh. And then he says this, here's a very descriptive thing. My sheep, they listen to my voice, And then they follow me. They listen to my voice, and then they, they actually do it. Now, based upon these words, would you consider yourself one of Jesus' sheep? Do you listen to him? In other words, do you spend time in the word of God? Do you spend time meditating on the word of God? Do you spend time studying the word of God? Do you spend time reading the word of God? Do you spend time, you know, uh, uh, all, all, you know, you know memorize, all those things? Do, do you? Do you do that? 
Do you spend time talking to him in prayer? And, and then after you spend time with him reading his word and meditating on his word and memorizing his word and all those things, do you then say, okay, God, I want to go out and live it as best I can? Would that be the pattern of your life? No, no one's going to live it out perfectly. But when you look at the pattern of your life, according to Jesus, you, you hear him, and then you do it. Does that sound like you? Somebody who's, man, you, you find yourself in this book all the time and then you're living it out. No one's going to do it perfectly. I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm just talking about the pattern of your life. Jesus said this in John chapter 14. He said, if anyone loves me, you love him? Oh, yeah. He will obey my teaching. There'll be a conduct follows, you see. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me, there'll be conduct behind it. He won't obey my teachings. So, so once again, you evaluate yourself. Uh, it doesn't matter what you say. Don't say I love Jesus. Just think about your conduct. The pattern of your life. Are you obeying what God says? If you are, wow. You love him. If the pattern of your life is, you know, I sit in here and I, oh, there's some of it I think is good and, you know, I don't murder anybody. I mean, that's one of the commandments, right? Uh, but really, the pattern of your life is you, you don't obey the Lord. That tells you something. It's a good way to examine yourself, as the great apostle Paul tells us to, to do. I mean, Jesus boils it down to nine words. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. You don't have to be a genius to know whether you really love him or not. I don't care what comes out of your mouth. It's easy to say, I love Jesus. That's easy to say. Titus chapter one says, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They claim to know God, they verbalize it. I love God, I love God, all that kind of stuff. But by their actions, their conduct, they deny him. You might know people who, you know, they say they love God. I never see them in church. They never come to Bible studies. They're, they, they, you know, they're, they're just living in sin all the time. And that might be you. And Paul says, test yourselves, examine yourselves, quit examining everybody else, and look at your own life. In Acts chapter 26, this is really great, it records this. So then, this is Paul talking, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent of their sin and turn to God and prove their repentance. 
Prove the fact that their prayer mattered. Prove the fact that they walked forward in a Billy Graham crusade or a Greg Laurie crusade or here, Big Valley. Prove that their, their, their faith was genuine by their deeds. Prove it. And the reason why Paul could say that is if Jesus Christ invades a person's soul, you're gonna be able to look in the mirror and, and see change. Something has to happen. Look, your, your deeds don't save you. Listen to me very carefully. Your deeds, your conduct does not save you. Doing good things doesn't cleanse you of your sin. You're saved simply by turning your life over to Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it, true conversion will always bring a change. You see? John Calvin said this, kind of a famous quote, faith alone is what saves. Faith in Christ Nothing wrong with saying a prayer. There's nothing wrong with saying, Jesus, come into my life. That, that's the, that might be the initial momentum that gets the whole thing going. Nothing wrong with walking down an aisle. Nothing wrong with any of those things. It's, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. But Calvin goes on and says, but the faith that saves is not alone. There is going to be... Um, Change, transformation. You're gonna become more and more like the image of Christ kind of a thing. Here's the deal. It's impossible to separate love for Jesus Christ and obedience. It's impossible. In my humble opinion, the acid test of true belief is obedience. Now, nobody's gonna do it perfectly. Okay, some of you have been here, you know, before I was saved. You know me intimately. And you know I, I haven't always done everything right. There's a whole litany of things that you could think about. Some of you are thinking about them right now. I shouldn't have had you think about it. Because <laughs> the list is long. And thank the Lord for his scripture that says, love covers a multitude of sins. Thank you. Thank you for loving me. And just saying, you know what? He's growing in his faith. That's not the unpardonable sin. It doesn't disqualify him from anything. Thank you. Nobody's gonna do it perfectly. Nobody. So please don't misunderstand me. Your obedience or your conduct doesn't save you. It's just an outward sign that you have been saved or it's a sign that you're not saved. You examine yourself because there's a crummy day coming. The judgment day is gonna come. And Paul makes it crystal clear that part of that is just based upon your conduct, how you chose to live your life, the pattern of your life. 
One of my favorite quotes is by Dr. MacArthur. He said, it's not our perfection that proves our salvation. It's our reaction to our imperfections. In other words, <laughs> you can't be perfect. No one's going to be perfect. But you know you're saved when you do sin. And you just you feel crummy about it. I've met too many people who claim to be believers and they're okay with their immorality. They're okay living in an immoral lifestyle. They're okay living in sin. And let me just tell you something. There's no way if you have the Holy Spirit in you that you can be okay with sin. You're going to have some sort of reaction to sin. You have to. Number two, and I'm going to run through these next two. God will judge you according to your conscience. Look at verse 12. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know this law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. Now, what does this mean? Well, let me answer it by asking two questions. And the first one will be the question that the Jewish person asked, and the second question would be the question that the Gentile would ask. And by answering these two questions, I think you'll get it. First, the Jewish person. They're gonna say, hey, wait a minute, Paul. What do you mean that God's gonna judge us? God actually spoke to us, the Jews. We're his chosen people. I mean, it was through the prophets who were Jewish that we got the Bible. We're the ones that wrote the Bible down. We're the ones that have recorded it over and over and over again so that the whole world can have the Bible. Come on, we've got to be exempt from the wrath of God that's going to come. In other words, it's got to count for something that we're his chosen people. And Paul answers this question in verse 13. And he says, for merely listening to the law, merely having the law, that doesn't make you right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right. Once again, this goes to conduct. In other words, big deal you knew the law. What matters is, did you obey what God said 100% of the time? And the answer is no, nobody could. Nobody can obey the law 100% of the time. The Jews had no excuse for not knowing that they stood condemned. No excuse. God said, here's how I want you to live. Boom, 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 boom. And not one soul could ever live out the law 100% of the time. Can't do it. But it's the question that the Gentiles are going to ask that deals with a person's conscience. The Gentiles are going to say this. Hey, hang on a second here, Paul. 
What do you mean God's going to judge us? You're out of your mind. After all, we don't know anything about the Bible. We don't know anything about God. I've never heard about the law. I don't know anything about the Ten Commandments. So how in the world could I possibly be judged when I don't have the scriptures? Yes, the, the Jews had the scriptures. They fumbled the ball around. I get it, judge them, but how, man, we didn't know. We had no clue. And Paul answers this question in verse 14. He says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know this law when they instinctively obey it, even without hearing it. When I went to school, never once at Fremont Elementary School, never one time was there a class when I sat down in kindergarten or first grade or second grade or third grade where they said, okay, kids, take out your pencils. I need to tell you something. Murder is wrong. I was never taught that. I never remember my mother saying, little Ricky, I need to let you in on something. Don't kill somebody. I just knew it was wrong. Instinctively, I knew. Instinctively, I knew it was wrong to steal. I didn't go to church. I didn't know nothing about the Bible. But I knew it was wrong to lie or to steal or to, to cheat. I, I just instinctively knew what was wrong, but I also instinctively knew what was right. I knew it was right to help people. I just knew it. I knew it if someone fell down that I should go over and pick them up. I just instinctively knew right from wrong. And what Paul is saying is, is that that is your conscience at work. Your conscience has told you what is right and what is wrong. I know a lot of unbelievers who are honest businessmen, they're faithful to their spouse, they love their children, they honor their own parents, they understand that lying's wrong, they're, they're generous to those in need, they care deeply about people, and the reason they know to do these good things is because somewhere within their souls, they know they're supposed to do them. You just know it. Their conduct proves that they know what is right and what is wrong. Their conduct proves that somewhere within their souls, God's law has you know, been written. We understand the idea of morals and ethics here. Unbelievers feel guilt, right? Let me give you an illustration. Most people live outside of prison. There are more in the United States of America, 350 million or 360 million people, whatever it is, the majority of people, the overwhelming majority of the people live outside of prison. In other words, the minority of people, small minority, actually live inside a jail or a, a prison. Now, does this mean that mankind is basically good? I mean, if the majority of the people live outside of prison or they live outside of jails, does that mean that the majority of the people are basically good? And the answer is no. The Bible teaches that mankind is basically bad. Mankind is totally depraved. Ever since sin enters the world in Genesis chapter three, you know, mankind has been on a downward spiral. 
But there is within the soul of mankind a sense of righteousness that keeps him from being as bad as he could be. Don't think that because the majority of the people live outside prisons and jails that that means we're just basically good. No, because of our conscience, it keeps us from being as bad as we could be. There have been many times I have wanted to kill somebody. They've made me, I'm gonna kill that guy. That pesky little thing called my conscience says, no, don't do that. Not good. And it kept me from being as bad as I could have been. That law that God wrote in my heart. It also motivates me to do the good things that I do. I look at our country and the majority of the people in our country, it doesn't matter what the Gallup poll says, are unbelievers. But when there's a crisis somewhere in the world, there's a tsunami that hits or an earthquake that hits. What, what do we do? What do people do? They just know instinctively, I better give to that. I need to give to that. It's not just churches that do that kind of stuff. It's everybody because instinctively from God, we know we're supposed to do something good to help people. We just know it. And so millions and tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars are, 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 are given. Anyway, n n n number three, God will judge you according to your motives. In verse 16, it says, and this is the message I proclaim that the day is coming when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge everyone's secrets. Really? How does that make you feel? That word secrets right there, your secret life, literally means your motives will condemn you. As I said earlier, unbelievers can do good things, but the only good things that God cares about are those things that you do for him that bring glory to him. And so when an unbeliever does something good, it doesn't mean anything to God, why? They don't believe in God, therefore the motive behind it cannot be that I'm doing this good thing for his glory, can't. They don't believe in God. It's just, it's just a filthy rag, according to Isaiah. But when we as believers do something, our motive is different. Our motive is to bring honor and glory to God. Look, there are a lot of food banks in our town. A lot of unbelieving people hand out food. That's a good thing. Does it mean anything to God? No, because it's not done to his glory. It's a good thing. Our food bank, what makes a difference is, is the motive behind it. The motive behind it is, yes, we know it's a good thing to help people that are struggling, but our motive is to bring honor and glory to God, you see? So why, does, why is Paul doing this? Why does he write this? Beloved, he wrote this because he was trying to show that all of us are in desperate need of God and the forgiveness that he offers through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, here's the deal. On judgment day, nobody's gonna be able to say, my conduct was sinless. 
Nobody's going to be able to say, you know, my conscience was perfect, you know. Nobody's ever going to be able to say, my, my motives were spotless. Nobody. We're all going to stand before God doomed when the final judgment comes. Now, would it be good news if the Bible told you a way of skipping this final judgment? <laughs> that there'd be a way that you wouldn't have to stand before him and kind of evaluate your life? That'd be good news. Jesus said this in John chapter three. For God so loved the world, you, that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him, whoever would put their trust in him, whoever would say, Jesus, I, I give up, I repent of my sin, I humble myself before you and I receive you into my life. You become the CEO of my life. You're the king and I'm gonna be your subject. You get to skip the final. You get to skip that crummy day. But, and you'll have everlasting life. Here's the deal. There's only one way you get out of that crummy day, that, that final exam of your life, where God's gonna look at your conduct, he's gonna look at your, your conscience, and he's gonna look at your motives. Only one way you get out of it. And that is by having his son in your life. Now, my conduct sometimes is still crummy. <laughs> my conscience isn't always clean. My motives aren't always pure down here. But when the father looks down, he sees his son in my life. <laughs> and that trumps all those other things. And God's someday gonna say, Rick, come on, no final exam for you. You just get to spend your eternity with me. And for some of you, that ought to be your decision today. Just give your life to Christ. Just give your life to him. Let him come and be a part of your life, your family, your business, whatever it might be. Why don't you stand, everybody over in the venue, why don't you stand? If you're here, just close your eyes for a second. If you're here and you wanna know Christ, you wanna give your life to Christ, you wanna escape the final judgment that's gonna come, we go into our altar room and say, help me, I need Christ. And our pastors, our elders, our spiritual leaders would love to talk with you, pray with you. Father, thank you for our time here today. Sure have enjoyed it. Thank you for the, the quartet. What, what great guys. Thank you for the choir and the orchestra. Thank you for our teenagers that led us in some music and led us in our time of giving. Lord, may uh, we have a great time over in the fireside room with prime time or out at the cafe over a coffee or whatever it is we're gonna do today, Lord. And I pray this in your name, amen.